Well, please uh, do be seated, and if you have your own Bible, we're going to be looking at Colossians chapter 1, and I'm actually going to change the reading. I think it might help us all to begin actually at verse 1, not just uh, at verse 9. If you're using the church uh, Bibles, it's on page 983, Colossians chapter 1. And starting at verse 1, we'll read verse 1 to 14. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers and sisters in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so, or for this reason, then, from the day we heard, we've not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power, according to His glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints of light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Well, let me um, explain for those of you who were away on holiday last, uh, last Sunday or um, who are visiting us this Sunday. Let me explain a little bit, uh, if I may, what I'm trying to do. Uh, by looking both last week uh, and then this morning, just in this prayer of the Apostle to the church in Colossae, which is part of modern-day Turkey. You see, as most of you will know, uh, here at Edinburgh North Church, ENC, uh, we're in one of those peculiar seasons between uh, when our uh, dearly loved uh, minister, Rupert, uh, who has um, resigned and he's moving to uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, uh, the United States, and uh, to continue his studies. Um, we're now in a season when we are looking uh, prayerfully to call a new minister, and in due course, God willing, that will happen. And it's in that season, as an ordained minister, I never had to do what you have to do. I was always on the other end of things. But now as a church member, this is a season when there are all sorts of questions which will arise. And as I said last Sunday, quite understandably, one of the questions will be, well, what kind of minister are we looking for? 
And I, as I said, I think that's a valid question. It's a good question. But I would also suggest that there are perhaps other questions worth asking before we even answer that question about what kind of minister. And I said last Sunday that maybe the question that might be also helpful to ask is, well, what kind of church do we want to be? But maybe I would suggest we reframe that question to be, not uh, what kind of church do we want to be, but what kind of church does the Lord Jesus want us to be like? What would please Him? And what does He want for us to be like here at ENC? And I offered that while there are many parts of the Scriptures to which we might turn, it seems to me fruitful to look at some of the prayers of the Apostle in his letters. I say this because as an apostle, which is a unique position that Paul and the others originally had, when they pray, quite logically and reasonably, we would expect they are praying that which would please Christ himself. And they pray such confident that Christ will answer those prayers. And so what we saw as we looked at the thanksgiving of this prayer, verses 3 to 8 last Sunday, we saw that when Paul gives thanks to the Lord for what he has done in this church, we saw at least four characteristics of a church which pleases Christ. We saw that here are people who are first marked out by a faith in Christ, which is no small thing. Secondly, they are people with love for one another. Thirdly, they are people with hope through the gospel, hope. And fourthly, a people who are encouraged by the supremacy of Christ and the sufficiency of Him as Savior. Those four characteristics, uh, I think, for which Paul gives thanks to the Lord, would probably be four characteristics of a church which pleases Christ. And that probably is the kind of church for which we should aspire to become. But of course, you look at those characteristics and you think, well, how do you be that kind of church? Are these just idealistic, sort of extraordinarily high objectives and aims? How do you be this kind of church? Do you just sort of sit on a Sunday and hope that something falls from the sky and that's how you, you end up being this kind of church? It is incredibly hard. Later on in this letter, if you look on with me, uh, chapter 1, verse 29, Paul talks about the struggle of his ministry, and that word is actually an intense word. He struggles to present the ministry that he's been entrusted with to both those who have known him and not seen him. Chapter 2, verse 1, I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you. To be this kind of church that pleases the Lord Jesus is not easy at all. It is a struggle, but it is not impossible. And the reason why it's not impossible has nothing to do with necessarily the keenness of the leadership, has nothing ultimately to do with the fervency of prayer amongst God's people, has nothing to do with the skill of any one particular person, it is supremely because of who God is, Father, Son, and Spirit. It is that which gives this 
Prayer now in verses 9 to 14, it's redolence, it's beauty, it's color. Paul is acutely aware, though he has, has no personal knowledge of these uh, Christians in Colossae, he's aware in chapter 2, verse 4, of possibly some of the other offerings that are coming to these churches, and I'll address that. Clearly in chapter 2, verses 8 to 23, he sees the challenges that are either actual or potential for them, and so he prays for them. But he prays as well because he knows how easily discouragement can creep in and sap a local church's hope. But more than anything else, the reason why Paul prays as he does in verses 9 to 14 is not simply to offer them or me or you a model prayer that you can pray. I mean, it's at least that, but it's far more than that. The ultimate reason why Paul prays for this church to become the kind of church that Christ wants for them is because Paul is enthralled with the glory and the, the wonder of who the Lord Jesus is, in whom there is all fullness, power, and authority, and willingness to build his church. So never ceasing to pray in verse 9, he asks first that they be filled with all knowledge wisdom and understanding. Verse 9, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Now, in the cultures familiar to the largely Roman-influenced Colossians, there were different religions, different uh, philosophies, different spiritualities, which were offering women and men various insights, various learnings. And these insights, these learnings came with a price tag and people were willing to pay uh, good money for it because people wanted ways to make living in a chaotic world more manageable. If only they knew the right stuff, did the right steps, and understood the right ways to manage, well, presumably then their lives would be that much better. That's why they were paying what they paid. And that was what was on sale. And that's why people would, would kind of march into Colossae and say, here's what's on offer. Because they were looking for, well, they were looking for, for wisdom. Uh, they were looking for understanding. They were looking for such because they wanted to be certain people. But the gospel came to the Colossians and said, that's not the way to go. That's precisely your problem. If you look in the wrong places or go to counterfeit offerings, you will always, in the end, be disappointed. More strikingly, you'll be ensnared, you'll be trapped, you'll be oppressed, you'll, you'll receive judgmentalism later on in chapter 3. So the question would come, I suppose, to the Colossians, as it does to me. Okay, <laughs> so where do I go? How in the world can we find what we're looking for? And that's why Paul is praying, first of all, in verse 9, as he does. For the Colossians, it was tempting to listen to answers other than perhaps what Epaphras, or verse 7, the faithful minister, one of their own, they were tempted possibly to at least give and listen to alternative expressions. 
and they would be, at best, wobbling in their confidence. Do you mean to tell me that it's in Christ that I can find wisdom and understanding and knowledge? And for us, the temptation is to accept, I said this last week, to accept very plausible ideas and assumptions about what makes a flourishing human life. And, and the danger is, you see, both for the Colossians and then for, for us, is you take these plausible ideas and you actually blend them into your understanding of Christian ministry, Christian discipleship, and what makes for an ideal church. And here's where the gospel which Paul preached and which Epaphras explained to the Colossians, in which you and I can hear even this morning, here's how the gospel comes to and resolves our human struggles. But see how Paul actually does this. This is fascinating. How he angles the gospel into the very implications that they needed to receive. Paul asked the Colossians to know God's will. Did you spot that in, in verse 9? To know God's will. Now, what is God's will? It isn't so much, for example, oh, I need to know God's will on the matter of whom should I marry or where do I go to work or what do I do with my investments. I mean, that's relevant. I'm not minimizing that. But verse 20 of chapter 1, what is God's will? It is to reconcile all things in creation in Christ it's to make everything restored in its per perfection. It's to put back together again, but in a more glorious way, all existence, which includes women and men forgiven and matured in Christ. When you see what God's will is for the whole of existence, not just for His church, not just for His people, but for all existence, then the church, if you will, has its cataracts removed. It can at last see something and says, this is what God has intended. And he's including us in his great work of redemption. See, Epaphras in chapter 4, verse 12, that's what he's praying for, Paul says. He loves you and he's praying that you know the will of God, the intention. And both Paul and Epaphras pray that the Colossian believers may increasingly see how once you know God's will for all existence to restore things in Christ, well, that has practical implications in your everyday life, which is why, secondly, he prays in verse 10, that they be fully pleasing to the Lord, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. See, to know the will of God, to reconcile all things in Christ, that has, if you will, practical legs to it. This is how a church grows in maturity. Walking in a manner worthy of the Lord really kind of echoes what we hear in the Old Testament, particularly in the wisdom literature, Psalms and, and Proverbs. But now it is more fully alive, this wisdom, because it's wisdom in Christ. Where it becomes down to earth is in the context of our daily living. Uh, if we had time... You would see, for example, that to be fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, includes, for example, the ethics and lifestyle of chapter 3, verses 1 to 17. 
in the way we speak to one another, in terms of our sexuality, in the way we conduct our lives. It includes as well the, the household, the marriage relationships, parent to child, slave to master, workplace situations of chapter 3, verses 18 to chapter 4, verse 1. That is a church, therefore, for which Paul is praying, and he's asking that they have a knowledge of God's will, because that's how you be the church Christ wants you to be, because it is hard. This is gospel-shaped, practical working out of knowing God's will in all its fullness. And you notice in uh, verse 10 that when this church for whom Paul prays and asks the Lord to increase their knowledge of His will, when that works out practically, their knowledge of God actually increases. It grows. But none of that is, is easy. Sometimes it's very exhausting being the church that that even Christ wants the church to be. And in fact, can I actually say this? Well, I'll go ahead and say it. There are many times when being Christ's church is discouraging. Which is why, thirdly, do you notice in verse 11, Paul, how can we possibly be the church that even Christ wants us to be? Paul says, of course you can't do it on your own. That's why I'm praying for you that you might be strengthened with all power. May you be strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for all endurance and patience. He deliberately, Paul, subverts, in other words, flips upside down, words like power, might, endurance, which would have been commonly used in the sort of Roman Greco parlance speech with which the Colossians would be most likely familiar. He subverts those words. He takes language of, of the street and says, I'm going to redeem those words and fulfill those words. Power is not found by some of the problematic teachers that may be intriguing you. Might, endurance, they're not found in philosophies or techniques or even spiritualities. All those are false starters. Power, might, and endurance are given freely to the church in Christ. The church, you see, and I think, I think search committees probably need to, <laughs> to be aware of this. I think leadership needs to be aware of this. Certainly ministers need to be this, aware of this. The church is not intended simply for growth or success. The church is intended for glory. Or as Paul puts it in chapter 1, verse 28, when everyone is made mature in Christ. That is, that is the destination and the intention of the church. But to reach that kind of maturity is extremely hard. How, how in the world can the church keep going? How can, the, how can the persecuted church, who are far a greater number than we are, they're the majority of the church today, how can they possibly keep going? But equally, uh, up and down our country, 
Yes, there are big, successful, thriving churches for which we give thanks. But you and I know the vast majority of churches in in this land are very small in number, with few resources. Here's the question, how can they possibly keep going? How can the church in the West avoid simply circling the wagons in some defensive posture in the face of a culture that is so much against us? How can they keep going? And to bring it home, how can we at Edinburgh North Church realistically but also intentionally, how can we keep going? We can't. We cannot at least in our own strength and ability. That, that, that little clause is important. because <laughs> Otherwise, you'd say, well, that's really encouraging, Gavin. Thanks. We can't on our own keep going. This might come as a bit of a surprise, and neither could Paul. Neither could the church in Colossae. Except, and this is what's the thrilling part of this entire letter, Because Paul is not offering them a a church endurance course. He's not offering the leaders, here's how you keep going, as much as he's saying, look at the Lord Jesus Christ. See who is your Lord and Savior. See in Christ specifically that he is the one who has all power. He is the one that has glorious might. He is the one from whom you can receive endurance and patience with joy. I think over the coming months, as well as the coming years, we need to remind ourselves that there will be days when we will feel uh, incredibly encouraged and buoyed and uh, very pleased. But there'll be other days when (laughs) we won't be walking around, uh, you know, sort of with fist-pumping confidence. We may look and feel like Well, like some of the cyclists, um, even the elite riders, who at the end of a stage race are close to collapsing. And that may be what you will see around us. But along the way, there will be sisters and brothers caring for us, praying for us, even crying with us, and just sitting still beside us. And it will be through them, through you, that actually the rest of us will receive Christ's strengthening. And when we fail as a church, let me just cut to the chase. When our disobedience knocks us down, I don't mean every one of us. When our pride or our lust or our anger or our bitterness, when all those things hijack what we think the Lord is doing amongst us, where do we go? Do we just throw our toys out of the pram and say, well, stuff it, I'm, I'm out of here? It's tempting. But not according to Paul. The answer, when everything looks pear-shaped, is Christ our Savior, Christ our Rescuer, and our Redeemer. He is our only comfort and solace. And he wants and is gracious and is willing to pull us up when we fail. Which is why Paul finally, or lastly rather, prays in verses 12 to 14 that they be thankful for redemption. 
I don't know any other way to put it. They'd be thankful for redemption. He prays the Colossians will know where to go when they fail, when they blow it, and when their consciences are bruised by the awareness of their continued sinfulness. Paul directs them into thankfulness. It's it's not that he's wanting to yet again teach them the gospel. As much as he wants to remind them, be thankful. When things are going badly, when you've made mistakes, it's not rebuke necessarily you need that will pull you back up again, but thankfulness. And he directs them into the thankfulness for the glories of redemption in Christ. And notice Paul's choice of words and expressions. First, God the Father has qualified you. Qualified you. It's a very specific word. It means he has authorized and provided legitimacy for you. You can legitimately say as you place your trust in Christ, in Christ, he's my king, he's my savior. He's the one that knows me when I make mistakes. And in Christ, his people, the church, are actually qualified. Do you notice this? To share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He's using Old Testament imagery. Paul assures the Colossians, chapter 1, verse 5, you have a hope, yes, and you have a destiny to be women and men qualified to receive all the joys and benefits of reconciliation, verse 22. And therefore, you've been qualified. No one can dispute it, or at least no one can dispute it with any legitimacy, that in your life, though you may not always feel it, There is now no more shame, no more guilt, no more condemnation, no more hostility. Chapter 2, verses 10 to 14. Secondly, Paul uses the expression, God has delivered you, which means to drag you out of danger like a lifeguard or the rescue boat. To drag you out of danger, to rescue, to save. In Christ, please hear this. In Christ... God does not reluctantly forgive you, going, oh no, he's prayed this prayer of of accepting Jesus. Now I have to forgive him. God delights in forgiving. It's because he intentionally, he actually goes out of his way to search for you and to rescue you. He is relentless in His forgiving love in Christ. Third, God has transferred you, which means to switch sides or change allegiance. And I think we can sometimes forget uh, that there is actually an oppressive domain or authority of Satan under which we are all beaten down. But you've been set free from that. And when we are rescued, we are transferred to a new citizenship, a citizenship under the rule of a dearly loved Son of God. You've been rescued from a dominion that's oppressive and tyrannical, abusive, and transferred into not a kingdom of a bully, but of a gentle Savior who willingly spilt his own blood to honor the Father and to rescue you and me. You've been rescued by a the one who is now your Lord, who, believe it or not, actually wants the best for you, both individually and collectively as a church. And here's the point. 
we will fail. We will fail. Not all the time. Sorry, that sounds really glum. (laughs) We will fail. We will disappoint one another. I mean, we're, we're doing it now. Well, hopefully... This sermon's not disappointing. Well, it could be. It could be that. We're realists, aren't we? And not intentionally, but we will probably hurt one another, both by accident as well as occasionally by being absolute muppets towards each other. So here is where a God-given thankfulness, oh, not a thankfulness that sort of sweeps under the carpet any wrongdoing, we don't, we don't bury the hurt and struggles that we're having saying, oh, you know, in Christ we're all forgiven. No, it's in Christ we're all forgiven and therefore let's proactively work at reconciliation. But I'm thankful that there's the gospel that's greater than your problem and my problem. And it's the gospel that's in Christ. Now let me, as I conclude, let me try to bring what I was doing last Sunday and this Sunday, let me try to bring it together and apply, I hope, appropriately, to where we are here at Edinburgh North Church. First, please please hear this point. You do not need me to call you to pray more fervently, or to pray more fully, or to, we need to pray like Paul and be more theologically robust. I take it as a given that we all would say, yeah, that's true. I also take it that you don't need me to exhort you to pray because we've all heard that exhortation and usually what happens when a preacher exhorts you to pray more, you're excited for about two minutes and then spend the rest of the time thinking, I'm so bad at that. So you don't need me to do that to you. We can do that on our own. If you simply look at this prayer as a model prayer, it is at least that, but it's more than that. And if you fail to see Paul's overarching certainty, then we will miss out on the certainty and hope for Edinburgh North Church. Because secondly, consider why Paul is sharing this thanksgiving. And why is he sharing this prayer? Paul prays for the Colossians because he is jubilant. Jubilant by who God the Father is. He's the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Very beginning of the epistle, he stresses that. Paul is overjoyed when he considers who Christ is. He is the image of the invisible God, chapter 1, verse 15. He's the head of all creation. He's the one in whom all the fullness of God dwells bodily. He is the Son in whom all wisdom and knowledge and glory exist. He's the Savior who shed blood, rescues not only from guilt and shame, but from oppressive powers of darkness. And he is in chapter 3, verse 1. He's the true human who upon his return will give to his resurrected people their true humanity and identity. And it's his gospel that Paul says the Colossians heard. A gospel which is unstoppable in the world. It's not restricted to any one culture, race, or gender, or moment in history. Paul is that thrilled that this is who God is. This is who Christ is. This is what the gospel is. And how could I pray anything other than this as I do in verses 9 to 14 for you to be the church whom Christ wants you to be? And if that's so, then finally, then what Paul prays for the Colossians is profoundly important and timely for us. His thanksgiving and prayer are like a a wonderful bay window 
carefully designed and installed. But don't just look at the bay window. <laughs> look through the bay window at the vista that this window opens up for you. Paul's thanksgiving and prayer become a window through which we at Edinburgh North Church can see the splendor of Christ, the glory of Christ, the sufficiency of Christ, and the hope of the gospel, and the willingness of Christ to answer any church that says, please, on our own, we can't be the church you want us to be. Will you please give us here in Edinburgh North, as well as the other churches in this city, all that we need to be the church you want us to be. It will be a joy. It will be hard work. But it will be a privilege. Because we know who leads us, who cares for us, who loves us, and who actually does want the best for us. Let me pray for us. Grant to us, Lord, we ask you the Spirit to think and do always such things that are right, that we who cannot do anything that is good without you may by you be enabled to live according to your will. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.